All right. It's great to be with each of you today. Um, it's a joy to spend the first hour thinking through corporate worship, and we are going to continue on meditating on all the scriptures teach us on that important topic. It is, I'll just mention, such a joy to um, know Josh and Aaron and to know their shepherding love and care for this assembly. Uh, we share a sweet partnership in the gospel. It's been a joy for our churches to uh, benefit and care for each other. And so we pray uh, for you regularly that God is growing this assembly in his grace. And uh, it's, it's my joy to, I've been in, in and through this building a number of times, but to actually join you uh, for worship on the Lord's Day as a gift. Let's pray before we jump into God's word together. Father, you are good and you have met with us already as we have sought your face in prayer, as we have uh, sought to behold your glory, to remind ourselves of our, our frailty, our sinfulness, and how our only hope is through the redeeming blood of Christ. Thank you for all that we have and, and what we stand in as your children because of the gospel and in union with Christ. We pray now that your scriptures would unfold themselves before us so we would see patterns, we would understand their, uh, the landscape of how the, the worship of your name is to be rightly understood and then lived out. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, the year 2020 will be memorable for dozens of reasons, no doubt. Uh, COVID-19, a contentious election, historic wildfires out west, uh, hurricanes in the Gulf Coast states, tornadoes, I mean, you name it. Remember murder hornets? I mean, th this has been a strange year in so many ways. Uh, but some have already forgotten what sort of began somewhat of the, the craziness uh, on, a, on a societal level, and that was the tragic death of basketball legend Kobe Bryant way back in January. It occupied the airwaves and was all over the news for weeks and weeks. Uh, it was a horrible helicopter crash in the hills of Calabasas, California in January in which it took his life at 41 years old as well as his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, and a number of other uh, friends that were with them. Now, while the circumstances surrounding this incident are horrific, they really are. I remember watching the news as it unfolded, and very early on, I was struck with something. How much worship terminology was being used to describe people's orientation towards this man's life. And it was interesting. It's not really a question uh, up for debate whether sports is idolized in our, our culture. It, it just is. And so it's really not up for debate whether elite athletes in our country are worshipped. They are. Fans and companies and endorsements and young kids, high school, college athletes, etc. Worship celebrity athletes. And this is abundantly evident, it was abundantly evident in the days following Kobe Bryant's death. Now a phrase I heard dozens of times 
Kobe Bryant was one of those transcendent athletes, meaning his contribution to the world and his qualities ascended far beyond just his athletic abilities. And as the Grammy Awards took place the very same night as Kobe's death in the Staples Center, one of the speakers referenced Bryant's death by saying how fitting it was to remember a man in the very house that he built. Are you catching worship terminology? Not knowing what else to do, people were beside themselves. They had adored this man. And to have him gone just like that struck them to their core. So, so what did tens of thousands of people do? Uh, interviews, one after another, said, we didn't know what else to do, so we flocked to the Staples Center. We went to the place where this man's greatness was observed. Shrines of all sizes memorializing his legacy with handwritten prayers and tributes to Kobe's legacy began to appear everywhere around the Staples Center. So much so that they had to cancel the upcoming games that week in order to accommodate the outpouring of love, again, by tens of thousands of people. Later that week, the Lakers hosted a home game, and the beginning of the game was unlike anything else. It was a celebration ceremony of sorts. But every player that night... Now, mind you, these athletes in and of themselves are million-dollar athletes. But they themselves, in order to honor the greatness of their fallen hero, had themselves introduced one after another as Kobe Bryant. So even the great LeBron James and others lost their individuality, shrouded in the greatness of one person. Are you catching the worship uh, illustration that this is. Union with Kobe was everything. This was corporate worship on display. For the same reason, everyone didn't simply honor Kobe at their own homes, but they felt the need to assemble in order to escalate and elevate the power of rightful tribute to him. God is supremely glorified in splendor as his people unite to praise his name. Not simply in the confines of their private isolated worship in their homes, as important as that is, but together. We offer prayers to God who hears. We find spiritual union not with a son of Adam, but with the son of God. We assemble to worship a God who hears and who never sleeps. And what a privilege is ours in this gift of corporate worship. I hope you were able to get one of the, the handouts. And if you were not able to, perhaps you can get that. That, that one packet should, should give you everything you need this morning. Uh, a little bit of a review of what was covered in the first hour. And we'll continue. So we'll follow along uh, through that. I hope it's helpful. But why is assembling in a particular place such an instinctual response from worshiping humanity? Is it nothing more than just what our culture calls FOMO? Fear of missing out? 
just a herd mentality, just what, what's everybody doing? We just got to go with what's happening? Well, assembling for worship has everything to do with how valuable we consider the person we aim to behold. Christians believe in the supreme value of beholding the Lord who has promised the unique blessing in his own covenantal presence when we gather for the honor of his name. And locating yourself, locating oneself in proximity to God's presence is of paramount importance for every person at every time in human history. Where are you, you might say. It's a matter of supreme significance, even as we read the scriptures and we desire to read them well. So it's been said that the three most important words in real estate are location, location, location. That's right. And in the Bible and in biblical theology, one's location is extremely important. Specifically, one's location in proximity to God is of supreme importance. Nearness or farness from God is a matter of life and death. To be near the presence of God and to worship Him is why we exist. But as the scriptures describes, to be cast out, to be removed, and oftentimes to be plunged to the depths of the sea or something like that. This is to be banished, a metaphor for removal or expulsion from God's holy presence and is the same as divine judgment. So let's consider this theme for a while as we look at the scriptures and we try to figure out how this grounds a robust theology for why we are doing what we are doing this morning, corporate worship. Let's look at this idea of sacred space. Sacred space, first in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. So under the Old Covenant, when God met with his people for blessing in one way or another, oftentimes that physical place was considered sacred for generations. We see this in many places. For instance, in the Garden of Eden, the continual refrain of, it is good, reminds us that this place where God walked with Adam and Eve was indeed sacred. For God blessed his work on the seventh day and consecrated it for his purposes. So here Adam and Eve walked with God in unhindered fellowship and in perfect communion, nearness to God. The garden was a place of sacred communion with Yahweh. As the story progresses, and obviously east of Eden being expelled from Eden, there is only pain and heartache and the effects of the curse. We arrive at Genesis 22 at Mount Moriah, and Abraham obeys God and, and nearly sacrifices Isaac there. God intervenes, and he provides a substitute, and Abraham sacrifices an offering of, faith, of thanksgiving to God. And later, King Solomon would build his temple there, 2 Chronicles 3, for it was considered sacred space. 
We think of a few chapters later in Genesis 28 and then in Genesis 32, Jacob at Bethel. After Jacob had had a vision from God at Bethel and wrestled with God at Penuel and was left with a permanent physical reminder of that encounter, if you recall the details there in his hip. He consecrated both of those places to God and he names them respectively. At Bethel, Jacob says, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven, he says. And at Penuel, the text reads, so Jacob called the name of the place Penuel saying, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. Nearness to God resulted in in blessing for Jacob, not cursing. And this was a mercy to him. There's so many more instances, and you may be wondering, well, what about this one and this? There's so many more that illustrate the same fact. We're just touching on a few. We arrive at Mount Sinai. And after Israel is rescued from Egypt through a miraculous passageway in the Red Sea, they're led to the base of Mount Sinai where God will officially constitute them as a nation by giving them his law on tablets of stone. But even Sinai represents the significance of one's location to God. And as you see on the screen as well as in your handout, this this illustration here, we see Mount Sinai itself displays the significance of nearness and farness from God. At that first level, the base level, we could call it the world out there. The world out there in in, in general. So this would be including even outcasts from God's blessings. The furthest remote regions do not know his his unique blessing. That next level up is is all of Israel. Consecration of the, the mountain itself. We read in in chapter 19, verses 12 through 13, a capital offense is is for all who break the barrier around the mountain. People also consecrated themselves by by washing their clothes. Another layer up, we might say, is the, the 70 elders, priests who are given permission to approach Yahweh. They consecrated themselves before feasting in Yahweh's presence. And then moving towards the highest peak, we see God appointing only Moses, the divine mediator, as allowed to move higher on the mountain to speak to God face to face. These boundaries both guard the sanctity of the place and they protect God's people themselves from the full dose of God's glory, which was undoubtedly lethal. And we see how even this, these concepts begin to create categories for what God will do in, through the temple and before that, the tabernacle. So the tabernacle and the temple, both of these physical locations modeled after what takes place at Sinai here were considered sacred space when Israel and Yahweh could have, lim- could have limited fellowship based on Israel's obedience and Yahweh's designated means. We see even ancient Israel, this as somewhat of a sidebar, they, they would have understood that this was not 
This was not to convey the idea that God was somehow hemmed in, or he was controlled now by man's buildings, right? And we know this even at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8, where Solomon says as much, where he says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. This question is, is paradigm setting. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Echoes of that question continue for centuries to come. And it forms and continues the hunger of God dwelling on the earth with men. We see sacred space in the New Testament as well. See various examples. Jesus honors and yet replaces the temple in his earthly ministry. We see Jesus and his disciples worshiped in the temple. Matthew 24, even the son of God during his ministry respected Israel's place of worship. And this is pretty profound for this would have been Herod's temple built simply and predominantly to pacify the Jews and, and not, to glor- not for the express purpose of glorifying God in the same way the first temple was. This temple would have been approximately twice the size. And yet Jesus understood and honored the Old Testament way of relating to God. Jesus and his disciples criticized the abuses of the temple. They drove out tax collectors in John chapter 2. Jesus then in John chapter 4 teaches of how he himself personally replaces the temple. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. In Jesus, a significant change has happened. All that was prefigured and foreshadowed under the old covenant, the sacrifices, the altars, the temples, uh, the priests, all this was fulfilled in our Lord and Savior. It is underemphasized how significant it is that the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom when Jesus was crucified. Now this veil would have been 60 feet high, four inches thick, so impressive of, of, a, of a thing that Josephus, the historian, writes that horses on either side could not rip it apart. And yet, what does the finished work of Christ do? Rips it from the top to the bottom like an old dish rag. One man writes, he says, the death of Jesus was an epic event, marking the end of foreshadowing sacrificial liturgies and of the man-made replica of the temple that is in heaven. So what other changes, though, do we see in the New Testament's understanding of the Old Testament's terminology regarding sacred space? Well, we see the church as temple. Christians, in 1 Corinthians 6, are referred to as 
temples. We see believers are individually referred to as temples indwelt with God's spirit. This is the very foundation for Paul's rationale for why they should be morally pure. For they are not their own, bought with a price and called to glorify God in their bodies. Temples. We see also though in 1 Corinthians 1 and 3 and 2 Corinthians 6 that the Christian community is referred to as the temple of God. At the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses saints who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This hallowing of God's name is no longer limited to a temple, but is happening across the known world, wherever the Lord's people gather to worship his name. Furthermore, Paul speaks of the church collectively when he warns of God's judgment for do you know, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He's speaking of the church as a whole here. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We see next that God's, uh, God's house, Christians are referred to as God's house with Christ as the cornerstone. And this is evidence from the passage that Aaron read earlier from Ephesians chapter 2. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 2 continues. And to identify Christians as a, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And what does this holy priesthood do? They offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. So in summary, what the physical temple was to Israel, the church as a spiritual community has become to the world, the holy residence of God indwelt by his spirit. That is a powerful thought. The church fundamentally in its individual parts and collectively as a whole is the dwelling place of God, his holy sanctuary where unhindered fellowship with the Creator is restored only through Christ. What a gift. One of my favorite definitions of the church goes like this. The church is the covenant assembly of the triune king, called by God from all nations in order to be his holy sanctuary and to serve him as a kingdom of priests glorious. But that's not all. There's more. We see scripture teach of the heavenly temple. However, we cannot ignore the fact that God's church today is a pilgrim church. What do I mean by that? We're not where we ultimately are going to be. And we know that with every ache and pain that we feel and with every injustice we observe in the world and every evidence of the fall, we're not home. We are a pilgrim church. We're moving towards our final reward, our final place of worship. 
Although the church is hardly in its seminal form any longer, some 2,000 years after Pentecost, we still worship with a future hope that longs for the day when our faith becomes sight around the heavenly temple described in John's revelation. And although we're referred to as individual temples ourselves, Revelation chapter 1 refers to the redeemed as a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a restatement of Exodus 19. Our priestly service, brothers and sisters, our priestly service, our eternal vocation. What are we going to do for all eternity? We will be priests to God. And what do priests do? They serve God in his holy presence. That is our privileged vocation for all eternity within our eternal sanctuary, the presence of God. Hebrews 7 through 10 tells us that the Old Testament shadows were themselves copies of heavenly things. In other words, descriptions of how to build the temple and how God would be worshipped under the Old Covenant were copies of heavenly realities. The dimensions of the new Jerusalem measure up to an exact ginormous cube, identical on a macro level to the Holy of Holies. And in other words, God's eternal temple is one huge Holy of Holies that knows no barriers between God and his people. Amazing. One man writes, the temple and the tabernacle of the Jewish tradition are designed for the purpose of symbolically pointing to the presence of God in all creation. Revelation 12 pictures this new heavens and the new earth as the eschatological temple. The space of Old Testament worship, the temple, is a continual reminder of God's goal for the creation. A renewed and restored world that fulfills in every way the cosmic goal of history worked out by God together with his son and spirit. The temple stands within Israel as a provocative testimony to what God is doing in time and space to bring about his purposes on earth. And in the beauty of the temple, God keeps before his people the vision of the new heavens and the new earth. Now that is a lot to think about. But all of that is extremely relevant to what God's people do each and every Lord's Day. As they gather around one another and they lift high the praises of God. They worship his name. They speak to him. And he speaks back through the scriptures. And he assures through the presence of his Holy Spirit that he is with us. And in that way, this is sacred space. Now, how should we respond? What are some points of application, some, some words of um, consideration for us? How should we understand sacred space today and how it affects our corporate worship gatherings? Well, first, let's exercise caution as, as connections are made between the old covenant temple worship and, and New Testament worship today. I, I feel the need to point that out. We need to recognize the fundamental difference between Old Testament tabernacle and temple worship and our places of worship today. 
this building is not sacred in the same sense that the temple would have been sacred. Now I know this church is excited about the prospect of a new building to worship in, and that is wonderful. But, and, and there may be even a certain consecrating of that, that building to the Lord to be used, and that's all perfectly be- well. But when we associate the walls with the, the, in, it, with the same import that would have been understood even under the old covenant, I think we start to get derailed a bit. From time to time, I serve at a church across town. We might have someone walk into our church that we don't know, and they may just say, you know, is, is the sanctuary open? Can I go, can I go pray in there? And th- this request has been made sometimes because they believe that that space is somehow uniquely spiritual. If they can get into a church, they can access, they can tap the presence of God. And I want to say, the temple is not gathering right now. (laughs) It's scattered. God's people are that place where his presence is. It is nothing about the beauty of the walls there. It is about his presence. So we need to exercise caution in that way. Secondly, remember who it is that has inaugurated the change from the old to the new covenant. New covenant worship is supremely pointed towards Christ. Worship Christ. No level of Christian worship can be considered Christian without Christ. Corporate worship is essential to the Christian life because it represents, it represents the finished work of Christ through the means of grace, the songs, the elements, the preaching, the prayer. And this assures God's people of their pardon and their forgiveness in Christ and their confident standing before the Father's throne. Do you know that? You need to rehearse and remember the gospel well, each day, but for sure when we gather in worship. I'm so thankful we've done that this morning already. Thirdly, look around on a Sunday morning and let it visually sink in that these ransom sinners right here, these ransom sinners are the fulfillment of God's temple building worship under the old covenant. Now again, we're a pilgrim church. We're not where we we are going to be one day around the throne, awestruck with every tribe and tongue and nation. That's where we're going. But see, in part, this is a fulfillment of what God has been doing since the fall to to make a people for his name and treasure that. Doesn't that change the way we think about each other? Wasn't it C.S. Lewis that said, you have never seen a mere mortal. This, this is not passing a stranger in the grocery store. These are the precious children of God. And God's presence is uniquely here. Fourth, approach corporate worship with eternity in view. Resolved to receive all the grace that God intends to dispense to you each and every Lord's day until we see him face to face. 
So when Christ's body assembles to administer the ordinances, baptism or Lord's Supper, to lift our voices in praise to Jesus the Lamb, to read the word and to hear the word preached with specific application to a particular assembly, we stretch our hearts toward a future day when we will assemble with our brothers and sisters from every tribe and tongue. We ought to do that each Lord's Day. Meet with eternity in view. And as a gathered assembly united by Christ's Spirit, covenanted together to fulfill Christ's commands to His church, we anticipate and ceremonially prefigure in our corporate worship, everlasting worship with all the redeemed. This might be similar to the way the beauty of a choir isn't found in individual talents, but in the group's ability to blend as a unit and to sing, as it were, with one voice. Similarly, Christ's church isn't about spotlighting individual worshipers. Although our, our individual lives will be evaluated and rewarded by the Lord one day. But the glory of eternal worship is found in the millions and millions of pardoned rebels crying, worthy is the lamb who is slain. Now we swim upstream in a society that idolizes individual achievement. And we must admit that we collectively gather for corporate worship with this in mind more than we know. But we accomplish things by God's spirit that none of us could do individually. We declare and display God's presence among us. Lastly, approach the sacred space of God's united people as ground zero for exercising spirit-given gifts for the edification of the assembly. When God's people gather for worship, the gifts of the spirit that he has given come out in a way that builds up the entire assembly in the entire community, such gifts cannot be exercised in isolation. And how have we learned that time and again? Uh, first through the season of you know, quarantine earlier this year, and in ways where we have been pushed apart from each other. God intends for his people to worship him in an embodied way, not merely virtual holograms of one another together. Consider how Hebrews 10 pulls together so many themes we've already discussed this morning. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up to us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great, high pri or great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here, holding fast to our confession, our hope in the gospel, this is perseverance, and it happens corporately. Who will hold on to you 
when your faith begins to fail? Who will come alongside? Obviously the Lord through his spirit. But he designs you to help one another make it to eternal worship in which we will be that kingdom of priests. There's the anticipation of eternal worship as we walk together in this way. Ephesians 4 specifically states how Christ has given gifts to men and it's the spirit that enlivens believers to exercise them for the building up of the body. There's a litany of other New Testament one another commands that all envision life together. There's a quote I'd like to just conclude with that summarizes so well. It says, one of the reasons for gathering together as God's holy temple is to recall his promises and to encourage one another to live out in everyday life that holiness which is his gift to us in Jesus Christ. Church meetings should not be regarded simply as a means to an end, a preparation for worship and witness in everyday life, but as the focus point of that whole wider worship, which is continually repeated self-surrender of the Christian in obedience of life. I pray that by God's grace, you connect the dots. You understand what God has done, the lengths to which he has gone through Christ to earn this privilege of this gathering this morning. And never undervalue and underestimate the formation spiritually, the maturing that God designs through this gathering. I believe by and large, Christians uh, see it as a, in an untapped way. God meets with us through his truth given uh, means through the scriptures in ways so powerful and transforming that we so desperately need. I'll just draw your attention uh, by way of summary. I don't think I've mentioned it yet, but there's one more page in your handout. That's a bit of homework for you uh, before I pray and conclude here. I, I encourage you to take a little survey, okay? Perhaps this afternoon or throughout the week. And all it does is simply draw out some helpful heart level questions where you can sort of rate yourself and how you're doing in some of these ways. And the goal is to help you grow in your ability to worship well, to worship with God's people in a way that maximizes the grace that God intends to give when you gather. 